0: We're glad everyone is here this morning, this rainy Sunday morning. Um, I'm filling in for Dale this morning. He uh, is enjoying a much-needed break, celebrating Father's Day with the girls in St. Augustine. So I'm covering for him this morning, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, hopefully preach through and understand more deeply David's message in Psalm 11. If you guys want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 11 this morning. Um so, how many of you this morning have ever felt like you got the rug pulled out from under you? Normal is no longer normal. Foundations are crumbling. Now, if you're having trouble thinking about anything, can I remind you of 2020? There was a pandemic, there's racial, social, and political divides. There was a huge change in leadership in the country, and, um, on a biblical level, there was a God-given and scientifically proven gender identity, the God-given and scientifically proven gender identity was being challenged. So, one of the things that Melissa and I loved to, or started doing during the lockdown back in March of last year, was a whole lot of porch sitting. We couldn't go anywhere, so we, uh, we came to love and appreciate our back porch. Now, I had just rescreened our back porch and hung a bunch of bird feeders during the winter. And we really loved, we really developed a love for watching the birds. Some things we learned about birds. I didn't know birds were different. I thought all birds were just kind of the same. I mean, they look different, but I didn't know like there was personality differences. So mockingbirds are crazy aggressive. Okay, sparrows and finches, the little tiny birds, they're the ones that mainly eat at your bird feeders. They're like spastic and anxious. They like bounce around everywhere and like don't really know where to land. And and um, and crows are retaliatory. So like a crow is much bigger than a mockingbird. But here's what happens: so the mockingbird will just challenge any bird that's in its territory. Like don't matter how big it is, it just challenge it. So what we noticed is like a mockingbird will go after a crow, but then when the crow does. Is a crow goes flies up high in the tree, like higher than a mockingbird can go, and then starts calling. And the next thing you know, it's got like five of its crow friends, and now they've come back to like terrorize the mockingbird. Okay, so crows are kind of retaliatory. Now, we also learned about a hawk. So we have a hawk in our neighborhood, and it's incredible because this hawk will just come and perch on our back fence, and he just sits there. He's so steadfast. He's so confident. I mean, that mockingbird will be all over him, like, like this, and he just, he doesn't even care. And it's like, so you got all these other birds that are flopping around, and you know, they've got all these different personalities, and this mockingbird, just, or this hawk just sits there. Okay? So, as this morning, as we unpack um, Psalm 11, my hope is that we can learn to be more like the hawk, and less like the other birds. That in the face of anything that the world throws at us, we can be encouraged to stand firm in faith rather than to flee in fear. So let's go ahead, as our custom, let's go ahead and read Psalm 11. It's really short, so it should be no problem for us to get through it. All right, so, ready? One, two, three. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. All right, so in Psalm 11, we see David declare his confidence in God. While the world around him seems to be falling apart, David's friends and advisors were all around him, afraid of what they were seeing and telling him he should run away. So like, look at verse 3, for example. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They're posing this question to David. Like David's friends, we too can be tempted to give in to fear. Psalm 11 is David's answer to his friends and to us of what to do when the world seems to be crumbling around us. We have a choice between faith and fear. David's message to us this morning is to take refuge in God and to keep pushing, keep doing what is right. So that's what we're going to talk about. Now, there's not really any historical context uh, as to, to when these particular foundations were crumbling and when this psalm was actually taking place. We can't really pinpoint when it was written, but there are some pretty substantial life-altering events that happened to David that this psalm could correspond with, one of those being Absalom's rebellion. If you guys remember, last time I preached, it was Psalm 3, and David was fleeing in the night because Absalom, his own son, was trying to overthrow him and kill him. So that's pretty life-altering. Also, throughout this time of, um, of David being the anointed king of Israel, Saul, who was the actual king of Israel, and knew that David was going to take his place because God had declared it, Saul was trying to kill David. He was terrified of David because he didn't want David to take his place. So I kind of personally like the historical connection between Psalm 11 and David's flight from Saul because as we see in verse 1, David uses this bird simile. Um, and he does this, he makes a similar simile in 1 Samuel 26, 20 when he's, when he charges Saul with hunting him like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So there's a similarity there. However, I don't think neither of these necessarily fit well with Psalm 11, neither of these issues, Absalom's rebellion or Saul's plot, because in both cases, David was actually fleeing for his life. In this psalm, David is refusing to flee this suggests that this psalm is not talking about physically running away so much as I believe we're supposed to read this psalm or we're supposed to see this psalm more broadly. That in the face of fear, we should not fall for the temptation to abandon where God has placed us. God has sovereignly placed us in this world for a p- specific purpose and reason. So let's look at verse 1 and David's confident refusal. In the Lord I take refuge, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? The verb flee here, as well as the pronoun your in this verse, are plural. So David's friends are not suggesting that just David flee, but everybody. There is this sense of a rising tide of fear and despair sweeping throughout Israel. This reminds me of like hurricane season in Florida. It's like a hurricane shows up on the radar and we all stay glued to the weather reports to see where it tracks. And if it turns out to be heading our way, we all go out and buy as much water as humanly possible and then bunker down. Like this is what's happening in Israel. So David understands something during this time that his friends don't. God is the ultimate refuge for his people. In faith, David knew and trusted that God was near. David understood the sovereignty of God. He knew that God had him exactly where he was supposed to be. To give in to panic and to run, which was what his friends were telling him to do, would be to surrender to unbelief. And I know, at least I can speak for myself, I hope everyone in this room can speak to this, is we've all been in this position. I will be the first to admit that trusting God that living in faith is really hard. David was no different. And as we take a look at verses 2 and 3, we will see him wrestling with this decision, this, this, this idea. So verses 2 and 3 say, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David felt deeply, this temptation to give in and flee. During this time, he probably felt vulnerable. These people, you got to think, the people that were counseling him to run were his friends. They knew him intimately. They knew his deepest needs. They knew his deepest desires, his deepest hopes. They knew how to talk to him. This wasn't just a stranger. This was somebody that knew him. They knew how to persuade him. On the surface, what they were saying made sense to him. David was God's anointed king. He understood warfare. And I I believe the illustration of this wicked archer preparing his bow to shoot is evidence of that. Once that archer, I don't know if you're familiar with any of you are familiar with archery, but like once you fit that arrow and you pull it back, your arm can only hold that pose for so long before it starts giving out and you got to let go. If you don't let go and your arm starts shaking, then your accuracy gets off. And so. David knew there was a limited window here. There was a limited time here. And I know it's, it's difficult for us to understand as, an Ameri- as the American church, the idea of physical harm to the church, um, physical violence towards the church, towards what we believe. But I think that at least in the last year and a half, we've felt the pressures of the culture and we understand at least socially, what it feels like to be a persecuted church. Um, We are being challenged, our faith is being challenged on a regular basis. So just like David's friends, many of us today see the evil that is destroying the very structures of society. And unfortunately, just like David's friends, many of us have concluded that there's nothing left to do but throw in the towel and concede defeat. Our question is the question raised in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is called this is the counsel of despair. The godly are helpless. There is nothing anyone can do. Whatever we had is gone. Why should we waste our lives on this hopeless crusade? It's better just to give up and run away. We can turn now, I want to turn now to the Gospels and Jesus' earthly ministry to show you that this temptation, this counsel of despair, is not just today. It's a timeless temptation. Jesus was tempted to flee from the danger God had appointed for his life many times. In Luke 13, the Pharisees tried to convince Jesus to change his plans because Herod, the current king, was trying to kill him. Jesus refused. In John 11, his own disciples advised him to turn from the work God had for him to do. When he set off to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, we all know that story, they reminded him that the last time he was in Bethany, the Jews were trying to kill him. He refused to listen to their warning, and we all know what happened. He went to Bethany, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. In Matthew 16, when Peter heard Jesus say, that he must be killed and rise again, Peter tried to talk sense into him. No, that's foolish. You're not going to do that. What did Jesus do? Jesus refused to listen and rebuked Peter. If Jesus had fell into this council of despair, if he had, if he had submitted and surrendered his plans and, and listened to his friends, he would have left the path that God had sovereignly laid out for him and would not have died as our Savior. Humanly speaking, we look at it, or at that time the disciples look at it, and go, "What, what good can come out of your death? But Jesus trusted God. He stuck with the plans, and through his faithful obedience, now any who trust in him will and can be saved. We are all tempted with this counsel of despair. It is alive and well in our culture, as well as the church. And I want to I take a minute and go over with you some modern examples of giving in to this temptation, of fleeing like a bird, as David illustrates in verse one. First, you have like survivalists. We think of these, we call these today preppers. Think of all the countless shows on cable right now that are promoting this living off the grid lifestyle. It's prevalent in our, in our culture today. The problem with this is that that Jesus calls us to be the light of the world. We can't be the light to the world around us if we bury ourselves in a bunker 10 feet underground. Others withdraw emotionally. These people just stop caring. Have you ever met somebody, they look at suffering and consequences of sin with an attitude of pride, and the thoughts of like, man, this serves them right. These people are getting what they deserve. The problem with this is that they forget about Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Or how about Matthew 5, 7? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Emotional withdrawal is not an option for someone who has been touched by the grace of God. Lastly, thirdly, I think others flee through nostalgia. They somehow think that our current place in history is somehow infinitely worse than the good old days. You ever hear somebody talk about the good old days? The problem with this is that sin and suffering have always been a part of our everyday. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. There are no good old days. Things The temptations of man might have looked different in 1980 or 1950, but there were still temptations of man. God in his sovereignty appointed us to be born in this place and time to serve him here and now. We can't live in the past or always wish things could be different. See, these withdrawals, they seem to offer an escape, but they come at the expense of the Great Commission and our influence for the gospel. Worse, they imply that God is not able to protect us. Now, as we turn, I want to turn now to the second half of Psalm 11, and I want, to see, I want you guys to see David's rejection of this counsel of despair and his establishment of a firm foundation on which to stand. David understood his friends had made a serious mistake. They were looking to the world And it's temporary foundations. These foundations established by men that were now crumbling around them. David knew something different. David knew that the foundations established by God that supported his people could not be destroyed. Look at me, look with me at Psalm 90. Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. You are God. David wholeheartedly turns his attention to God in the second half of Psalm 11. David repeats the personal name of God, Yahweh, four different times in these few verses. David is showing the reader that his courage to stand in faith rather than fleeing in fear comes from knowing Yahweh, the Lord, and taking refuge in him. In verse 4, David first affirms that God rules. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. When we see the word temple, we automatically think of something like Solomon's temple or Herod's temple. I was looking at an article this morning, because I don't know if you guys know this. I'm big into Lego. And I was looking at an article this morning, and um, there's a guy that built a scale model replica of first century Jerusalem, and he used like 115,000 Lego pieces, and the temple was like smack dab in the middle of it. It was really cool, but that's what we think about when we think about temple. But you gotta think where you gotta think where this psalm falls in history. David, David, this was, this was before either one of these temples were erected. So David's not talking about this, magical, this majestic earthly temple, okay? Secondly, if you look at the second part of verse 4, David makes it clear that the throne room of God's temple is in heaven. God dwells in heaven, far above all of our puny establishments of rule, Here on earth, his throne stands as a symbol of his authority to rule and to judge. The fact that it is in heaven shows that no matter what happens here on earth, God is still in control. In verse 4, David affirms that God sees. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The word see here in verse 4 can be translated as gaze or scrutinize. David's point here is that God is paying attention. He is watching everything with care and concern. David paints this picture here of God's eyelids testing us. So when I read this, I immediately think of like Karen Breeden, and I'll tell you why. So think about a teacher standing in front of her class and telling their students as she turns around to write the lesson on the board that she has eyes in the back of her head. And why is she, why is she telling the kids this? She's telling the kids this because she knows when she turns their back, they're going to misbehave, and she's trying to scare them into not misbehaving. Okay. So like the idea, the idea of God's eyelids testing us, it's like, it's like David's trying to say, even if God has his eyes closed, he still sees us. He still knows what we're doing. Even when it seems to us that God is not at work, we can rest assured that he is carefully watching the life of every human being. And he gives every human being ample time to show who we are by our actions. Think about that archer from earlier. The wicked think that they can go into the shadows and can shoot unseen and get away with it. David makes it perfectly clear here that God sees everything. He watches our lives and he knows our hearts. Jesus himself looked into the heart of man during his earthly life. John tells us in John 2.25 that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. When John saw Christ exalted in his heavenly glory, he tells us in Revelation 1.14 that Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire. Guys, all of our hearts are open before Christ, and all of our desires, good or bad, are known to him. When we stand before Jesus, we stand before the God who sees. Finally, in verse 5, verses 5 through 7, David affirms that it is God who judges. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. From his throne, God judges. He obviously judges the wicked, and their punishment is severe, as we can see in these verses. However, I also want to pay attention to the fact that the righteous righteous are also not exempt from God's judgment. It is important to make it clear here, though, that God's judgment of the righteous is for their good. The verb test here in verse 5 refers to the process of proving precious metals. So what God is doing when he tests the righteous is he is demonstrating to the world that we are genuine. Look at 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is important. I want you guys to keep this idea in mind, this truth in mind, the next time you have one of those why me moments. God is allowing suffering and trial into your life to show your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, what it looks like to practically stand in faith rather than flee in fear. God wants to use our lives, especially the hard parts, to reveal himself to the world. For those of us that are faithful to this call, our reward is made clear in verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright, shall behold his face. God promises that those who trust him will see his face. This will not be attractive to you if you do not love him. There is no motivation in seeing God if you do not delight in him and treasure him. When I married Melissa 15 years ago, and she came into, she came into view with Pop in the back of the church in West Virginia. I teared up. Seeing her in that moment, knowing that I loved her and she was mine. That is what David is describing here. We long to see his face because he is the desire of our hearts. It is with this confidence and hope that we can stand firm. As the world around us goes from bad to worse, we will not give in to the counsel of despair. God is is the firm foundation for us, his people. So in closing this morning, I want to share with you some practical ways I believe we can continue to faithfully stand firm in a world that is crumbling around us. I believe that the first and most important thing that we can do in faith is pray. Why? Because prayer forces faith. I'm going to say that again. Prayer forces faith. We live currently in a very reactionary society. When something happens, we want to react. Great example. So last year, when all the political and all the racial and all the social divides happen, okay? Something happens. We use, I'll use a police shooting to, as an example. A police shooting happens. What's the first thing everyone does? Let's not take some time and process this no, let's protest, let's react, let's overthrow. Like, that's the society we live in. And prayer forces us to do two things in these moments when we want to react that I believe are extremely beneficial to us. One, it encourages patience. In prayer, we give, our contr- we give control to God, we put the situation in his hands instead of us to reacting to whatever is in front of us it forces us to think about it two prayer changes our perspective in prayer we realize how big god is and how small we are being in the presence of god humbles us and oftentimes this leads us to react in a completely different way than we would have had we not prayed. So, I want to build off this idea of perspective change. Change of perspective now is my, is my second application point this morning. Proper perspective shows us what's important. In the age of social media and the internet, everyone suddenly has a soapbox. Everyone has something to say about everything, and everything is suddenly everyone else's business. Honestly, how much would our lives change this week if we got out of everyone else's business, focused on the sovereignty of God and where he has placed us in this world, and just served the people in front of us? I believe wholeheartedly that the, so much of the anxiety and anger that we see prevalent in society today is a result of people caring about things that God never intended them to care about. Proper perspective also helps us understand our audience. If we are going to image Christ in his gospel to the people he puts in front of us, we have to understand that people are different. I think in our pride, we have this expectation that everyone is going to think and act just like us. So, being that it's Father's Day, tell a story about fatherhood. So, I've recently found myself getting very agitated at my two boys because they do not know how to cut up their food when we eat dinner. Okay? <laughs> only the meat. Isaac says only the meat. Okay? So, I find myself agitated and I start, I start thinking about it. I'm talking to Melissa about it. And I'm praying about it. And I, like it clicked in my head. I had this expectation that my kids just come out of the womb with this skill. Like, as a father and as a parent, I don't have to teach them how to cut up their food. They should just already know how to cut up their food. And it dawned on me, in my pride, that part of my job as a father is teaching them and training them on how to be adults. And one of those things I have to teach and train them on is proper table manners and how to cut up your meat. I think in the same way, we can't expect lost people to not act lost. We can't expect immature Christians or Christians from different churches or denominations to have the same theology as we do. We have to know our audience and press in where and when it is beneficial to grow the kingdom and spread the gospel. Now, one more thing about perspective. David makes it clear here in this, in, this, in these verses in Psalm 11 that it's God's responsibility to judge. I think we lose sight in this culture, and in our society, that that's not our job. And I think what we want is we want, we want to go throughout life and we want everything to make sense and we want everything to be just. And when we're talking about perspective here, we need to, we need to realize and understand that ultimate justice and ultimate judgment doesn't come on this side of heaven. And if we're looking for it on this side of heaven, that's only going to make us angrier, that's only going to make us more anxious, that's only going to make us more afraid. If we place that, adi- that idea of, of proper and final justice and judgment, if we take it out of our court and we put it in God's, it changes, atti- it changes our attitudes. So the last point of application this morning I want to I talk about pressing in rather than pulling away. So once, once we have prayed about it and we feel like we have a proper perspective on the situation, we can then press into it with grace and the message of the gospel. So we don't need to be like those birds from my illustration at the beginning of this message. We need to engage with people God is put in our paths. We need to immerse ourselves in situations and circumstances that He has laid out before us. In a culture that is so driven by opinion and everyone having their own truth, you guys heard that, like where they talk about like everybody's got their own truth it is vital as Christians that we press in to these relationships and circumstances, not with our own opinions at the forefront, but with Jesus Christ and his gospel being our primary message. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, instructing him on how to minister to the church in Ephesus, Paul tells him in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim, this is what he tells Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's charge to Timothy is God's charge to all of us. Hear this. You can create just as much difference, I'm sorry, distance, between yourself and your neighbor by tearing them down in anger and pride as you can by tucking tail and running away in fear. Galatians 5, and 23 says, Galatians 5:22 and 23 lists the fruits given to every believer by the indwelling Holy Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Church, if we are not entering into every conversation, every relationship, every situation, every circumstance, demonstrating these attributes, we are not showing the world who Jesus is. And the world needs to know who Jesus is far than they need to know what our personal opinions are. So, in closing this morning, it being Father's Day, I want to challenge all the fathers in this room to step up in faith. We need fathers who teach and train their children to cut up meat. We need husbands that love and respect their wives. Honestly, this culture just needs men to be strong, God-fearing men. So I challenge you this morning to join me in this. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning thankful for your word, thankful for the truth, God, thankful for your mercy and your grace in our lives, God, because we, we fail at this every day. We fail and fall into the temptation to run, to, to flee, to ignore, to not acknowledge, to be angry and prideful and arrogant. We fail at this every day, God. And we thank you for your steadfastness in our life. We thank you for your faithful moving and working in our lives, God. And, and we just pray now, we ask you now as we, as we leave here this morning, that you would give us what we need to be strong and steadfast, to not fall and succumb to the, the pangs of this world, um, but God, that we would trust you in your sovereignty and we would work diligently to continue your gospel message to the world. And God, and on those days when it gets tough, I pray for just your encouragement and the Holy Spirit to remind us to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep trying. And um, God, most of all, if there's anyone in this room this morning that is struggling to know how to do this, to understand how to do this, to understand how to make sense of everything if it's crumbling around them, God. I pray that you would reveal Jesus to them this morning, that we make Jesus known to their hearts and you would give them the opportunity to come to you in faith and trust in him as their savior. We thank you and praise you for everything you do. In Jesus' name, amen.